Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 210 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Top Gun, an interview with Colonel Nicole Malakowski. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this was an awesome interview. I know our community is going to love Colonel Malakowski, and she is truly a superhero in every sense of the word. If you were going to write a superhero, you would just take her life story and just script it out and put it on the Marvel screen. Rich, what I really enjoyed about this interview with Colonel Malakowski is how she went to the Dean Center for Tick-Borne Illness and they approached her healing journey in a very unique way. They treated every pathogen individually so they can see the progress as she was healing. She talked to us about what medicine she used for each pathogen and what symptoms she had relief from as she treated those pathogens. Specifically, she talked about Lyme, Anaplasma, Bartonella, Babesia, SIBO, and parasites. So if you have lingering symptoms and you're not sure why, this is the podcast episode you should listen to to identify what pathogen may be causing that lingering symptom. Also, she talked about issues related to the heart with Lyme disease, but not just Lyme carditis. There are other complications we should be aware of, and she brought them on the table on this podcast interview. Matt, this is a woman who manifests resourcefulness. She would not allow her gender to prevent her from becoming a pilot. She didn't allow her height to prevent her from becoming a pilot. And she didn't let anything stand in the way of her accomplishing anything she wanted to accomplish, including Lyme disease. And it's this resourcefulness and the manifestation of resourcefulness that has allowed her to heal and will allow her to be a powerful model for people in the Lyme disease community. Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Colonel Nicole Malakowski to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hello, Colonel Malakowski, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We are really excited to have you here. And, and, and Colonel, can you please first share with us, uh, what was the, the peak of your professional career? Where was, where was the top for you? I think for me, um, and when I look back on my career, one, I'm lucky to have done a lot of kind of unique and fun things. But the thing I'm most proud of was uh, being the commander of the 333rd Fighter Squadron at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. So talk to us about that. What was that like and why was that such a great honor for you to become the commander of the 333? I think for fighter pilots, right, reaching the rank of lieutenant colonel and finally having the opportunity to be responsible for and to, you know, upwards of 100 different uh, airmen, right, your peers, your colleagues, also being able to take care of their families. Um, the mission that we had in the 333rd Fighter Squadron was very special. I had the most um, skillful, professional, uh, high-performing, you know, great Americans working for me as, as instructors and they would train up the next generation of F-15E fighter air crews. So I think being part of that training and education process was, you know, just very meaningful. Um, and I was just with a group of really high performing, fantastic, patriotic Americans. And that felt good, too. Well, but you've had so many other accomplishments that I think we have to highlight here. I didn't know if I were you after looking at um, the list of accomplishments we were able to uh, locate for you, which you would choose. And I think it's really cool that. Uh, that you selected what you dislike, but talk to us about being a White House fellow and how that uh, became a part of your resume. Yeah, sure. I had just finished up an assignment flying as a pilot with the Air Force Thunderbirds. And at that point in my career, um, the Air Force requires you to do a little bit of career broadening. And they have some great opportunities within the Air Force itself to do that career broadening, if you will, outside of the cockpit for a year. Um, a lot of it based in academia or education. Um, and I had been uh, exposed to this idea, uh, or at least the process, if you will, of the White House Fellowship. I looked into it and I thought to myself, there's absolutely no way that I will ever get picked to be a White House Fellow 
Um, but I was intrigued by the process of it and the challenge of it. And I needed something to do. I mean, once you come off flying with the Thunderbirds, you know, it's kind of like I need another another target or another something to go after. And so I thought, well, this White House Fellowship application looks challenging. Um, I won't get picked, but I think it'll be worth the process itself. Uh, and so I applied and somehow accidentally I was selected to be a White House Fellow in the class of 2008, 2009 which was really extraordinary as an Air Force officer to go off and be a part of a civilian fellowship at the White House. So talk to us about what that was like uh, working with uh, President Barack Obama and working in the White House. Yeah, sure. I actually was there uh, during a presidential transition year, which was super fun and unique. So I was uh, brought in as a White House fellow under actually George Bush um, and spent six months under him watching this historic election happen. And then for the last six months of the fellowship, our entire class fell under um, the Obama administration. So, I mean, really cool to be able to witness history, you know, firsthand up close and personal. Um, more specifically, each White House fellow has a, a specific job placement, all of them unique and different. And I was placed at the U.S. General Services Administration or GSA. And a lot of people were like, well, that's not very, you know, cool sounding or that. What's GSA? Well, GSA is basically the backbone and the foundation of the entire federal government. It's what uh, ensures that the government works from buildings to supplies, you know, to everything in between. Um, but what's cool about them is uh, they're responsible for setting up and running the office of the president elect. So the fact that I became a White House fellow during an election year at the General Services Administration found me in this very unique position to work at the office of the president elect. And that's pretty cool, right? Between election day and inauguration day, to be able to work with the outgoing and the incoming administrations, um, I still could kind of pinch myself. It almost seems surreal. So talk to us about another acronym, WASP. You talked about GSA, but there seemed to be another really cool experience that you had when you were working at the White House. And can you talk to us about uh, that acronym, WASP? Absolutely. That's probably my favorite acronym of all time. Um, WASP, as you and I are talking about it, is uh, world stands for the World War II Women Air Force Service Pilots. So these were America's first women military aviators, um, and they served during the World War II time frame. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, they were instructor pilots. Um, they were, uh, you know, test pilots. They were, you know, ferry pilots, ferrying aircraft. They did it all. Um, and essentially, right, they're the ones that paved the way and opened doors for generations of, of women pilots and especially women military aviators that have come after them, which, of course, includes me. Um, the interesting thing about the WASP program is as the World War II came to an end, they were very unceremoniously disbanded. Um, they were denied any kind of veteran status or benefits like burial in Arlington Cemetery or any of any kind of recognition at all. Um, and it was just kind of a really big, if you will, injustice. And as I went across my Air Force career, I realized how much I owed really to honor these women and these WASPs. And I found myself a White House fellow with um, just the ability to open doors and meet people that I probably had no business, you know, ever meeting or, or doing. And I thought to myself, you know, what can we do to honor the WASP? And I had come uh, to grow very close to a WASP by the name of Deanie Parrish and her amazing daughter, Nancy Parrish. And one of the things that Deanie was just adamant about was correcting the record, right? The fact that the WASP history was closed and archived and wasn't even in our history books to be taught across America, you know, was, was not right. And she wanted to correct the record. So we got to brainstorming a little bit and this idea of the Congressional Gold Medal came up, which of course is a, a, the highest uh, honor that Congress can bestow. 
on a, on a civilian, on an American. And so we got the idea of um, drafting Senate Bill 614 to award the Congressional Gold Medal to the WASP. And long story short, uh, they did receive that honor. And we were together with a giant team of people, too many to name here, um, able to correct the record. And as part of correcting the record, I understand you were able to speak at that ceremony. So can you talk to us about what it was like for you to speak at the ceremony where, where the record was corrected and the WASPs were finally recognized? Yeah, that was an extraordinary day on Capitol Hill. I mean, obviously a very patriotic day, an emotional day, a, a happy day to, to finally bring the recognition that the WASP and of course their families um, deserved. It was a very large ceremony. There was a lot of, you know, pomp and circumstance, I think rightfully so. Um, I was very excited um, to be able to speak that day. And to be honest, I was extraordinarily honored um, because I wasn't speaking on behalf of myself. I, I was trying to speak on behalf of just my generation and all the women military aviators and all military aviators that had come since the WASP, just to make sure that the WASP and their families knew how grateful we were how aware we were of their sacrifice, um, how aware we were of their commitment and to really fully acknowledge, you know, thank you, right? Thank you for what you did so that those of us can serve today. So now talk to us one, I wanna talk a little bit more about the WASP and the WASP ceremony. I understand that you had some physical challenges but despite the physical challenges, you were able to overcome those challenges and still speak so powerfully at that ceremony. What were you dealing with then and how did you overcome that? Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly an interesting timing, if you will. Um, about, uh, I guess, the time of the WASP ceremony, which was uh, in March of 2010, I was about, oh gosh, I was a, a few months pregnant with twins, um, but I was also suffering from a severely broken lower left leg. I had a, a trimalleolar tib-fib fracture, so I was actually um, wheelchair bound. So you can imagine I'm in, in this big maternity uniform, which by the way is uh, not very flattering. Um, I am pregnant with twins and I'm being wheeled on stage in this uh, wheelchair with my leg, you know, completely up at a 90 degree uh, angle to give this speech. And I had to get special permission from the doctors to leave my house to do this. I'll never forget when I broke my ankle, the first thing I thought about after hoping uh, and of course checking that the, the children in my belly were okay. The next thing I thought was I cannot miss the wasp ceremony because I broke my leg on February 13th. So I knew I was weeks away from this um, and the doctors really didn't want me out of the house, but I got special disposition to do that. So thank goodness. So the, uh, so the Colonel was able to show resourcefulness, even in the face of a broken leg while pregnant. This is true. Yes. <laughs> I wouldn't have missed that WASP congressional gold medal ceremony for anything. Well, clearly you wouldn't. So <laughs> let's, let's talk about one more thing. One more highlight that I'd like to uh, focus on. Uh, and then we're going to we're going to pivot over to your background. And that is let's talk about being the first female pilot who was assigned to the Thunderbird uh, squadron. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's an honor and a privilege for anybody to serve as a Thunderbird in any capacity. I like to remind people, you know, it's not just the six pilots you see in the air show. There's actually one hundred and twenty five different people from twenty five different career fields, you know, predominantly represented by our you know, extraordinarily skillful enlisted crews. So um, it is it is an honor privilege. And our job is really to go out there and represent the Air Force, you know, recruit the next generation of Americans to come serve and wear their nation's uniform and hopefully retain, of course, the airmen that we had. Um, at the end of the day, uh, I applied to be a Thunderbird to do those things, represent, recruit, and retain, and to be a part of an elite performing team. 
um, timing, luck, and circumstance had it that I was actually the first woman pilot selected um, to fly with the Air Force Thunderbirds. Uh, I have to remind people that, you know, I, I say I'm a product of TLC, and I, I literally mean timing, luck, and circumstance because, you know, there were a lot of women who flew before me that would have made extraordinary Thunderbird pilots and done a better job than me. Um, it was just kind of where they lifted the ban on women to fly fighters. I was in that first tranche of women to acquire the hours needed as a fighter pilot in order to apply to be a Thunderbird. And so there was a lot of luck again on my side, um, but I didn't go out, uh, I didn't apply to the Thunderbirds to be the first woman Thunderbird pilot. It just kind of worked out that way. So, and before you became a White House fellow, before you became a commander of the 333, before you, um, you were able to recognize the wasps and then become a Thunderbird, you were also um, a pilot uh, that had served in a number of different campaigns and you had been recognized with a number of different medals. So can you talk to us about your status as a deployed uh, fighter pilot? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, most people in the military, especially people in operational career fields, especially fighter pilots, you know, we train our entire careers um, to prepare for that moment of deployment, right? To prepare for that moment, you know, of going into a, a combat theater. And um, I consider it an honor and a privilege to have served. Um, I did fly in three operational F-15E fighter squadrons. Um, and during that time, I was able to, you know, accumulate some of the certifications and qualifications that make people frontline fighter pilots. So grateful for all of the uh, training that made us ready, of course, to go into combat. My very first combat hours, believe it or not, were in something called Operation Deliberate Forge, which most people don't uh, recognize the name of. Um, that was over Kosovo and Serbia in 1999. Um, so I flew there. I was a very young lieutenant. I was just happy to get my gear up on takeoff. Um, it wouldn't be until 2005 that I would deploy as an experienced fighter pilot and, you know, a leader of peers, if you will, in and out of combat uh, during parts of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, again, I don't know how to explain it, but you, you train your whole career to be able to go do that. So there's just an intensity and a focus and a commitment that we all have, you know, when we deploy. Um, and that's just, the, that's when you're on call, right? That's the height of your professionalism and skill has to come to bear every day. So it's an extremely serious thing. And it's also something that I think, I know I felt honored to be able to do. So in your career is one where you received a great deal of recognition and honors. And I'm just going to read off a list of awards that you had received. Uh, the uh, Meritorious Service uh, Medal, the Air Force um, Commendation Medal, the Air Force Achievement Medal, Combat Readiness Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Armed Forces Extraordinary Medal, the Kosovo Campaign Medal, the Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, the Korea Defense Service Medal, and the Air and Service, I'm sorry, the Air and Space Campaign Medal. How did it feel to be recognized in so many different ways during the course of your career with these various medals and recognition? Well, I mean, the military, I think, does a good job of, you know, trying to shine a light on the achievements of all of its airmen. You know, I'm certainly not the only person that has and the awards you listed there, but it's always good, right? It's human nature, I think, um, to be acknowledged for the things and the contributions that you've made. At the same time, it's important, you know, to not rest on your laurels. I mean, I haven't heard or read that list in forever. So that was a little bit of a, a throwback for me. Um, I see it as a chapter that, of course, I was proud of. Um, I'm more concerned about moving forward and going, okay, what's the next thing I can contribute to? Or, you know, what's the next team that I can be a part of? So accolades 
are nice and all, but they're temporary. Um, it's more about the, I think, the impact and the contribution. So before you became Colonel Malkowski, you were um, a young woman who grew up in Nevada. So talk to us about your childhood and what it was like to grow up uh, in Nevada. Sure. Well, actually going back, I was uh, born in Central California in Santa Maria, California, uh, moved to Southern California in junior high. And it wasn't until um, high school that I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. I consider Las Vegas, Nevada, my hometown, because that's where all the good stuff happened, right? Like that's where I was accepted to the Air Force Academy. That's where I soloed my first aircraft as a teenager. That was my home place, you know, for the 21 plus years that I was on active duty in the military. So that's why I call it Las Vegas, Nevada. It was great growing up there for uh, for one main reason. Um, there's an Air Force base there called Nellis Air Force Base, and it is famous uh, in the Air Force. It is known as home of the fighter pilot. So I grew up watching these fighter aircraft fly overhead, thinking I'm going to do that someday. And it's also, as you know, home to the Air Force Thunderbirds. And so it wasn't uh, lost on me that I'd be out at lunch, you know, eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwich and overhead would come flying the six ship beautiful formation of red, white and blue F-16s. And I remember thinking, like, I want to do that someday. And so growing up in Las Vegas, Nevada helped me stay motivated, helped me stay focused on my goals and kind of gave me that daily inspiration of those fighter jets to keep going. So as a high school student, did you know how unlikely it would be for you to be the first woman to achieve that goal that you set out for yourself while you're sitting there eating peanut butter and jelly and watching this crew of uh, fighter pilots perform? One of the beautiful things of kids, right, even teenagers, is that we think that anything is possible. And so it wasn't something that like even crossed my mind. Like you have to remember in high school, it was still against the law. It was against congressional law for women to even be fighter pilots. And I knew that somewhere in the recesses of my brain, but it didn't actually block me from having this goal and dreaming big. I now know how statistically improbable it is. Um, but at the time as a kid, it just didn't enter my mind. Now, Nicole, you, um, you had gone to and graduated from one of the top colleges in the world, right? So you clearly had a very strong educational foundation before you went to the Air Force Academy. So talk to us about what your educational experience was like, both in California and Nevada, before you applied to and attended the Air Force Academy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up in California and, you know, I'll be honest, I was the nerd. Uh, I was the kid who was like always sitting at the front of the class, raising my hand, you know, um, I was able to take a couple of advanced classes, you know, advanced math, advanced English and reading and stuff. And I, you know, had a lot of teachers, especially once I got to Nevada uh, in high school, who really nurtured that. Like, I remember my geometry teacher, Mr. Tesla, making me feel smart, you know, and he would talk to me about geometry as far as like aircraft in a dogfight, like to get me interested and excited about math and geometry and science. And I remember my English teacher, Mrs. St. Clair, you know, who taught us how to you know, thread together and storytell in a way that um, I still remember what she taught me today, which is impacting what I do as a professional speaker. So I think I had some, you know, extraordinary educational experiences. You know, the Air Force Academy is no joke when it comes to academics. Um, I think I came from a place where I was used to being in the National Honor Society, and then all of a sudden I'm in a place surrounded by people who are 10 times smarter than me, and the academics were 10 times harder. Uh, so there's an extremely high academic standard, um, but the Air Force Academy provides you with every opportunity, you know, to meet that standard. I was just talking to my son uh, yesterday. Uh, he's in the sixth grade and he didn't do, do so well on a test. And I told him it's okay to go to your teacher and ask for help. 
and he acted like he was embarrassed. So I told him the story of me at the Air Force Academy. I used to have to go to what we called EI, extra instruction, all the time. The only way I graduated academically from the Air Force Academy was seeking out help. So I was trying to, as a mom, use that as an example. I'm going to ask you to pause there for a second because I want I want you to talk to us about what you did to prepare yourself, not just intellectually to apply and qualify for the Air Force Academy, but physically, because you also had to be uh, someone who was um, a, a physically healthy and athletic person in order to be able to get into that academy. So what did you do as a high school student to get ready physically for the rigors of the Air Force Academy? Yeah, you bet. I mean, uh, you're exactly right. You have to be physically fit, I think, to join the military even even more so, if you will, to become a fighter pilot, just to sustain that high G environment requires a lot of aerobic stamina and a lot of anaerobic strength. And so those were things, of course, I focused on um, in high school. I did run cross country, so my aerobic skills were pretty good. I really enjoyed running. It was good for my, if you will, mental health uh, to go out and run a lot. Um, I wasn't the best. I'm not going to say I was good at it, but gosh, darn it. That was my sport. Um, and then I also was able to get into a little bit of, um, weightlifting, uh, to kind of build up my leg strength and my core strength, which was important because in the military, there's a lot of sit-ups, a lot of calisthenics, a lot of push-ups, And then again, I was a kid thinking ahead to my dream, this high G environment of a fighter aircraft. So a lot of running, a little bit of weightlifting, a lot of calisthenics. So you had a, a high level educational experience before you went to college where you were both preparing yourself physically through training in various respects, including cross country and intellectually so that you can be prepared for the academic rigors of the, um, of the um, Air Force Academy. And I'm wondering, what did you learn about ticks and tick diseases, either in your health classes or in your, or your science classes, or as part of your cross country training to prepare your body and to keep yourself healthy and get ready for the Air Force Academy? I knew nothing, zero, zip, zilch, nada. Um, okay. Looking back, right, that's a difficult and hard thing to say. So you're one of the top students when you graduate from high school, you go to one of the top colleges and, and let's just give a context for, for the Air Force Academy, right? It is one of the most rigorous programs that you have to apply to get into. And you actually need a congressperson to recommend you for this appointment. So even if you're going to an Ivy League school, the way my wife, for example, had, had attended, she didn't need a congressperson to recommend her to go to an Ivy League school, yet you had to get congressional support for this program yeah. that you entered into, right? Correct. So now, you now go to one of the top colleges in the country, and the taxpayers of this country pay probably millions of dollars to train you from the beginning till end. So let's talk about um, your training at the Air Force Academy. What was it like? Sure. I mean, so the Air Force Academy in a, is, a, is an extraordinary institution. And in fact, I can actually see it from my backyard where I live now. So I'm always waking up in the morning and cheering on those cadets because I know what they're going through. Um, it's four years. It's intense. I already discussed the intense academia, but it's also intense from a military uh, perspective, right? So um, constantly learning about leadership and teamwork, um, making sure that your, your room is perfectly set, that your uniform is right, that you march correct in formation, the type of discipline and focus and commitment that they teach you there. Um, they also, you know, there's a physical uh, program. So there's kind of three pillars there, if you will. So the physical fitness, exposing you to things that maybe you didn't really want to do, like jumping off like a 
a very high, you know, uh, board into a giant swimming pool wasn't exactly my idea of fun, but they teach you how to have the courage, you know, and the skill to do something like that. Um, we also had uh, a lot of survival training um, that we had to go through, you know, and sometimes, you know, we would go out, obviously we're right here at the, the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, you know, lots of trees, lots of outdoors, and we would go out and crawl around in that brush and everything, um, gaining confidence, learning how to do navigational skills, basic survival skills, et cetera. So it was a well-rounded education, and it was something that really taught you how to prioritize and make decisions on what you're going to put your time and energy towards that day, because they give you way too much. You cannot do everything every day at the academy, and I think that's part of the skill they teach you, right? So... So they teach you in the, you know, in the end to be a peak performer, how to perform at a peak level intellectually, emotionally, and physically, correct? Indeed. They teach you how to deal um, and be skillful in a high stress environment. And you, you hit the nail on the head, right? They teach you how to be physically fit, mentally fit, spiritually fit, you know, um, physically fit all of that uh, so that you're ready for the rigors of the military life. Okay. So now when you're spending your four years at the Air Force Academy, one of the top colleges in the world, that's costing the taxpayers millions of dollars to educate you. And they're teaching you to become a peak performer mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and now physically. Did they teach you anything about how to protect yourself from coming in contact with ticks or tick diseases? Uh, no. No, I have absolutely like no recollection of that. I know during um, one of the, the training programs that one of the survival kind of classes we do in the summer, um, we did talk about um, uh, bug repellent, but it was always in terms, I think, of mosquitoes. I don't remember ever talking about ticks, uh, how to do tick prevention, things like permethrin, picardin, never learned any of that until literally decades later. What about tick checks? I mean, were you, were you, were you taught as part of keeping yourself in a position where you are a peak performer, that after you're after you're engaging in activities like the training you were doing at the Air Force Academy at that time, that you should take some time every single day to perform tick checks to make sure that you have no ticks biting you or checking your skin to make sure if you had any rashes on your body. No, I was never taught anything about that either during my time as a cadet at the Air Force Academy in my teen years, all the way through to the time of my retirement at age 43 from tick-borne illness. Not so, what, so let's talk about the additional educational experience that you had in the training experience you had. So after you graduated from the Air Force Academy, you became an Air Force, what was the title? Cadet? Uh, lieutenant? What was your title? Yeah, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Force. Okay, you know, commissioned as a second lieutenant before you went into the Air Force, was there a form of basic training that you had to endure after you graduated from the Air Force Academy? Um, after graduating from the Air Force Academy, you kind of go straight into training uh, for your primary, if you will, AFSC or the role you're going to play. So I had a pilot slot waiting for me. I did have a few month period here where I had to wait for the start of my pilot training class. So I stayed at the Air Force Academy as a second lieutenant and taught cadets how to fly gliders. So that was super cool, right? What a, what a great first job. I was paid to teach cadets to fly gliders. That was awesome. Uh, and then a few months later, I went to pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base, Mississippi. Now, assuming as part of your, as part of your commission as, a, as a, an Air Force pilot, you were taught how to keep yourself safe in the event that you were either required to uh, required to perform on the ground, or if, you're, if you're, your plane were to crash, you'd have to have survival training, correct? Absolutely. We were given survival training. Uh, once you kind of get into your primary, 
Air Force specialty code, AFSC, mine was fighter pilot. Um, we would have to have, it was either annual or every two year training, forgive me for forgetting what that is. Um, but every one to two years, we would have to do what's called survival training, SEER training, survival uh, evasion, yeah, resistance and escape, I think. Um, but it would involve obviously survival skills um, in the event that you found yourself behind enemy lines. And did any of those survival skills include uh, teaching you how to check yourself for ticks or how to be aware of you suffering a tick disease? No, uh, we never talked about ticks, tick bite, tick bite prevention, what to look for in symptoms. The only time we would talk about uh, vector-borne disease was in relation to applying DEET on your skin for mosquitoes. Okay. So now let's talk about your additional education because you've also, you've also completed education at both the American Military University and at the United States Naval War College where you, were, where you received two different master's degrees. So talk about your education there and what you ultimately received your degrees in. Sure, yeah. So um, with the American Military University, that was actually, believe it or not, an online school. I thought it was extraordinary because it was very flexible. You know, when you're in the military as a fighter pilot, constantly deploying, constantly on, on weird schedules, sometimes night flying, uh, a traditional school is not uh, is, is not as flexible, if you will. So I found American Military University to be a good fit for me to get my master's degree. And in fact, um, I did the majority of my master's degree through them while I was deployed to Iraq. So from uh, my base, and then I did the rest of it while I was an Air Force Thunderbird. And so we would go to air shows and fly. And when we would go to our hotel rooms at night, I would get my nose in the books and work on this master's degree, which was in national security policy. Um, and I did that in order to, uh, one, it was interesting to me, right? I, I did it to um, hopefully add knowledge and skills so that I could further my career as an officer in the military. Um, and it also, by doing that, uh, it allowed me within the Air Force process to apply for unique opportunities like the White House Fellowship. So I needed to have this master's degree done, even though I'm deployed, even though I'm a Thunderbird, in order to apply to the fellowship. So to be honest, there was a very practical and pragmatic reason for that first one. Fast forward, I had finished commanding uh, finished commanding the 333rd Fighter Squadron, and as is tradition timeline-wise between lieutenant colonel and as you're pinning on full bird colonel, the Air Force likes to send you out for what's called uh, SDE, secondary developmental or senior developmental, forgive me, senior developmental education. Long story short, everybody has to do it somewhere. Um, I ended up at the Naval War College, which was actually my first choice. I wanted to do something with a sister service. I also thought the location of Rhode Island would be amazing. I got a second master's degree there. And uh, it's also in another form of, I think, national security policy and strategic studies. Okay. So now let's talk about how your career progressed, meaning you were, you were promoted repeatedly during the course of your career. And, um, and that obviously is a clear indication that you were a highly qualified uh, member of the military. It's not like, you know, you were a slouch in any way, shape or form, right? You graduated from one of the top colleges in the country. You graduated from two of the top um, uh, graduate school programs in the country. And at the same time, you're, you're going through a number of different promotions during your career. So talk to us about how you went from being a um, lieutenant, I guess, is way, was your initial rank when you graduated from, um, from the Air Force Academy. And then you ultimately became the colonel that you've retired from and are, uh, continue to have the title of today. So talk to us about how you went up through the ranks. 
Sure, you bet. So, you know, once I graduated the academy, I went to pilot training for a year. Um, I finished fourth in my class, which allowed me an opportunity to select any fighter aircraft I wanted. I had had my eye on the F-15E Strike Eagle since I was a kid growing up in Las Vegas. And so um, I was able to pick the F-15E Strike Eagle because there was one, one that dropped for the pilot training class. Spent about another year doing various training um, leading up to Strike Eagle school, if you will. So learned how to fly the F-15E over the course of nine or 10 months. At that point, um, I was sent off to my first operational fighter squadron, the 492nd Fighter Squadron at RAF Lake and Heath, just outside of Cambridge, England. It's amazing, right? You're a first lieutenant stationed in England flying F-15E Strike Eagles up Loch Ness. I mean, you know, sign me up again and again for that. Um, from there, I was given another operational assignment back to the 336 Fighter Squadron at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, um, which, by the way, I should have said is where we do uh, F-15E training. Um, from there, I had the privilege of doing a one-year non-flying assignment with the Army on the DMZ in Korea. I was stationed at Camp Red Cloud uh, as an ALO and an Air Liaison Officer with the Army 2nd Infantry Division. From there, I went uh, back to England, this time in the 494th Fighter Squadron uh, at RAF Lake and Heath. That's where I finished kind of with all of my certifications and qualifications you could get as a frontline fighter pilot. I mean, by then I was a two-ship flight lead, four-ship flight lead, instructor pilot, evaluator pilot, mission commander, flight commander. And that's where I was leading peers safely in and out of combat, you know, in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Um, so from there is where I applied to the Thunderbirds. So I headed over back home to Las Vegas, Nevada. Flew in the 2006-2007 show season as Thunderbird number three right wing. From there, I was a White House fellow from 2008 to 2009. We already discussed that. Uh, from there, I went back to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, where I became a director of operations and eventually the commander of the 333rd Fighter Squadron. Uh, from there, as we discussed, I went over to the Naval War College. And like most by that point, Colonel Selects, uh, with multiple master's degrees, they send you to the bowels of the Pentagon. So I went to the Pentagon working at the office of the Secretary of Defense, and it was during that time um, that I got a phone call from the Obama administration asking me if I would come over and uh, serve as the executive director of their Joining Forces program. So I was in charge with a national level uh, service member veteran and military families initiative um, under the direction of then First Lady um, Michelle Obama and Dr. Joe Biden. And it was during that time that it all came crashing down. Now, almost none of that even happened for you as a result of um, a policy that had been put in place by the Navy. And the policy that is specifically referring to that would have prevented you from becoming a pilot is that if you didn't have a certain height, you couldn't be a pilot, correct? Right. There was at that time um, definitely height restrictions. It was a minimum height of five foot four inches with an additional sitting height requirement to fly fighter aircraft. And I met it by the skin of my teeth. I am. Let's talk, let's talk about what you did to meet that by the skin of your teeth, because I saw <laughs> on your blog that you, you engaged in a unique behavior to make sure that even that restriction wasn't going to prevent you from achieving your goal. What did you do? I was extremely uh, nervous about not meeting the five foot, four inches. And so uh, as a cadet, I would hang upside down at the gym, on the bars. I would hang upside down on my bunk bed just to try to elongate my spine. And like the 24 hours prior to the official measurement, because we all know when it's gonna happen, I just laid flat on the floor. And I wanted every, I wanted that extra 16th of an inch or whatever. And 
uh, I made it by the skin of my teeth. So you're yeah. right. I am five foot four. <laughs> and one sixteenth uh, when, when hanging upside down for whatever period of time you need to. So there was never, there was never an obstacle that the young Nicole and ultimately the Colonel Malakowski was going to allow. There was never, there was never an obstacle you were not going to overcome. Is that correct? I, you could say I'm very focused like that and has always been a little bit stubborn. Yes. <laughs> so now as you're on this path in your career and you finally become, you finally become a, a commander of the, of the 333rd fighter squadron um, at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina, you, you have an unfortunate experience that now, um, now does put up a wall in your career, a unique wall for you, and that is you begin to get sick. So talk to us about what happened um, when you achieved, now what you described as the peak of your career, with the pinnacle of your career at the beginning of this podcast, uh, what happened to you there? You bet. Greatest honor and privilege of my life and my career, and the thing I'm most proud of was commanding right. the 33rd Fighter Squadron. And, and at the same time? Yeah. And, well, and at that same time, right, in order to do that, you have to be very physically fit. You have to be very healthy. You have to be mentally fit, spiritually fit. I mean, I was at the height of like it, it, all of my skill sets at that moment. Um, and yeah, I fell ill in the summer of 2012 and more specifically, um, and I cannot uh, factually connect this, but I think it's reasonable. We had just done the annual survival training where we had gone, gone out into the fields of Eastern North Carolina crawled around for two days in a row on the ground on our hands and knees, right? Practicing invasion and survival skills. All right. And a couple of weeks later, boom. Uh, so it's the summer of 2012. And I start to feel like I have the flu. You know, I now know there's no such thing as the summer flu per se, uh, although COVID is certainly changing that aspect for us. But I felt severely fatigued. I had joint pain, muscle pain, uh, just kind of overall malaise. Um, I avoided the doctor for about two weeks because that's what fighter pilots do. We don't want to be grounded. Plus, I was the commander of the squadron. I thought, well, I'll just take myself off the flying schedule. After about two weeks, I just couldn't take it anymore. I'm like, okay, it's time to go to the doctor. By this point, I had developed um, what I now know to be a traditional EM rash that was probably three, maybe four inches across um, on my right hip. Uh, I had no idea what that meant. I had never been educated on ticks, rashes, or anything. So when I went to the doctor, I described my main symptoms and I said, oh, by the way, I've got this little rash. Do you want to see it? He said, yes. He took a look at it, asked me some other little random questions, never brought up tick bites, never brought up Lyme. He was so concerned about it. I will never forget this. He goes, I'm going to go get another doctor to look at this rash. And they, uh, he went out of the room and brought in a full bird kernel doctor. So I'm thinking this is an experienced doctor. I'm also thinking, uh-oh. And they look at it and they talk and they're like, it's definitely a spider bite definitely a spider bite. So I was given some topical cream and five days of an oral antibiotic and I was sent on my way. Um, so that's kind of how I initially fell ill. Do you want me to keep going? Well, I just want to say that I, I just want to sort of build out the context. So yeah. you're everyone's boss there, right? Everyone who's coming to treat you is coming to treat the person who is in charge of the entire military base, correct? Oh, not, not the whole base. No, sir. I was just in charge of one of the fighter squadrons. I was too, too young at that point to be the wing commander. I would have liked to have been a wing commander someday, but <laughs> as you know, <laughs> I got derailed. But I was right. the commander of a fighter squadron, which was a big deal. And yes, they should be treating us to get us back airborne. 
because that's what the taxpayers of America pay us to do, right? To fly airplanes and defend our country. Right, and, 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 we, and we paid millions of dollars to millions. prepare you and train you. And yes. you, were, you were flying billions of dollars of equipment and you were yes. managing people who were flying billions and billions of dollars of, of, of military equipment. So, you know, we, we had a lot invested in you and you would, you, would, you would think that they would bring the best and the brightest, even if she wasn't in charge of the entire base, but certainly a large portion of it and a large number of people, you would think that they would bring in the best and the brightest doctors to evaluate whatever is going wrong with you, correct? Yeah. And I think to, to be, you know, to their credit, um, these doctors were doing their best. They also, and this is the fundamental problem, were not educated or aware at all. And so we've not been giving our doctors, civilian and military alike, the information, the training, the education they need to do the right thing in a timely fashion. And it right. was this day that was the fateful day that would change my life forever. But, you know, you, you were, you were, at that moment, at the peak of your training, at the peak of your education, at the peak of your responsibilities, the peak of your career, everything you had ever worked for uh -huh. was, was, was there at that moment. And unfortunately, you were not given the tools to prevent yourself from getting a tick bite. You weren't given the tools and the training so that you could find the tick biting you. Right. You weren't given the tools to determine what steps you should take to protect yourself from being healthy. And the doctors that you went to, because you did seek out medical assistance, didn't have the training to help you either. That is correct. 100% accurate. Everything you just said. Okay. So now let's, let's, move forward. How, how did your symptoms develop and how are your symptoms impacting your capacity to perform at the highest level that you needed to perform? Yeah. And remember, you mentioned all the different fitness that I had. I was healthy and physically fit as well. Super fit as a fighter pilot, uh, working out, lifting weights, running every day. All right. So, so, Colonel, let me ask you to pause for one more second. You said they gave you a cream to put on your, on your rash. Do you know if that cream was a steroidal cream? I do not know. I don't remember. I'm sure if I looked in my records, I could find that. But right now I can't remember. Because if, if it were, it probably would have actually exacerbated your situation and you actually would have had an immune compromising event that could have caused your acute illness to become a chronic illness by virtue of the medical treatment you sought out. Yeah, that could very well have been the case. And, you know, hindsight always being 2020, I, uh, I wish I was the doctor in the room that day because I would have known exactly what to do. Um, but basically, uh, I went away and, of course, um, I did not get better. And over the next three months, I would develop some very concerning neurological symptoms. So now we're talking about kind of that uh, holiday season. We're coming into Thanksgiving, coming into Christmas. Uh, the symptoms were predominantly a lot of pins and needles and a lot of numbness um, in patches all down the right side of my body, not the left side of my body. The doctor said, that's not possible. That makes no sense. I'm like, I'm telling you what my symptom is as objectively as I can in the body that I've lived in my entire life, but okay. So I had all of those pins and needles. Um, I started having a lot of problems reading and writing as far as comprehension, focus. Um, I also, my right eye started getting nystagmus. I ended up being um, having exophoria, et cetera. Um, I had a lot of issues with my short-term memory. Um, I couldn't even remember like how to log on to my military email. Um, I was dropping things with my right hand at home, which was very concerning to my husband. I was dropping cereal bowls and coffee mugs. And I was also starting to trip and kind of drag my, my right leg and my right foot. 
at this point, I was smart enough to realize I was completely, you know, unsafe to fly. Um, I did have a moment uh, during this kind of downfall of a three month period where I was flying. I was leading a four ship of F-15Es out over the Atlantic. We had just trained and we were coming home on a blue sky day. I was given a vector uh, or a heading change by air traffic control. And in that moment, I didn't know how to answer the radio call. A simple vector heading change radio call. And once my brain was like, oh, that's the words that you need, the same words I've used since I was like flying airplanes since I started when I was 12 years old, I couldn't remember how to key the microphone. And I couldn't remember where the radio switch was. Luckily, I had another pilot in the plane with me in the back seat. So I gave him the jet. I said, you need to fly and land this plane. That's when I went in. And that's when I said enough, like, I'm not flyable. They said, well, we can't find anything wrong with you. <laughs> so I had all of these symptoms, right? Which over the next few weeks continued to get worse to the list I just told you. At that point where I'm dropping things and dragging my leg, they grew concerned. They did an MRI. The MRI was normal, except for non-specific white matter lesions. At that point, they sent me to um, some uh, fancy civilian doctors up in Raleigh. Uh, they did spinal tap. Um, they also did MRIs and they came to the conclusion that I was probable multiple sclerosis, that they couldn't definitively uh, diagnose me at that point, but they expected me to progress for MS and that they wanted to follow me every six months with MRIs for MS. And so now we have the red herring. And now everyone is going to focus on that for the next few years as my, my condition continues to deteriorate. Now, you were also a young mom at that time. So talk to us about how your developing symptoms were impacting your capacity to parent your twins. Arguably the most horrible, right, symptom of all of this is the impact that it has on families. Um, by the time I was bit, let's see, 2012, our twins were two years old. Right. This is a very active time where you want to be out there, you know, walking them down the street and you want to pull them around the neighborhood in the wagon. You want to teach them how to kick a soccer ball, age two, age three, age four, age five. I couldn't do any of that. Right. I was the mom that sat on the couch and laid in bed with extreme fatigue with the doctor saying there's nothing wrong with you. And so that was, a, uh, I guess, interactions. Right. And that a parent could have had that were stolen. Um, not just from me, but was stolen from my kids. And the beautiful thing in all of this suffering, though, is that I have an extraordinary husband who took extraordinary care of me, believed me from day one, and is an amazing father. And so he had to double down and essentially overnight become my caregiver and a single dad to twins, all while working a full-time job, all because of a lack of education and awareness. I mean, it's astounding, even sitting here today, years later, when I think about this. So let's talk about what you expected of yourself as a mom, right? I mean, you were, you were a highly educated, very athletic, very fit mom, right? And you expected that you were going to be able to model that kind of behavior for your children. 100%. Yet you are now all but bedbound, right? I was, uh, basically, I could go to work, uh, you know, and that was it. And to be clear, you know, in North Carolina, things would kind of wax and wane, Right. That's the strangeness of these tick-borne illness symptoms. The second it's really bad, the next day maybe that symptom changes to something else. And so it's confusing for patients. And I think equally confusing for doctors that are trying to care for us. So I think the unpredictable nature of how I was feeling on any, on any, any given day made it difficult to be the wife and the mother that I wanted to be and that I really could have been had I been healthy. So now let's talk about 
another problem that you had without having a diagnosis. And that is, you now, you, you now leave this assignment, you're now, you're now um, transferred and you become a student at the National War College and you transfer to Newport, Rhode Island, right? Yeah, so it's the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. And basically about 10 months after I went to the doctor and showed him that initial, what I now know to be a classic EM rash, which by the way, grew to about six to seven inches across in a perfect bullseye. Um, you know, I wish I knew, I wish I knew then what I know now, but I didn't, uh, moved up to Naval War College 10 months after that, my husband, as I got out of the shower said, what's on the back of your leg? I said, what are you talking about? And I looked back and on the back of my right thigh was a fully three to four day engorged what I now know to be deer tick. And so my husband removed that tick. And I remember going into Naval War College as a student the next day and asking kind of the on-call nurse about it. They said, well, let's go in and let's see the doctor. And I remember keeping the tick. They said, you don't need to keep the tick, right? You don't need to keep the tick. You can go ahead and flush that. And this is exactly what a Navy 06, okay, officer said to me, she said, Watch your leg for the next 30 days. If you do not develop any kind of rash, you do not have Lyme disease. That was the quote. And I remember at one point, by the way, in North Carolina, Googling symptoms, coming across Lyme. And I asked the military doctor, the one I showed my rash to a few months later, I said, hey, what about Lyme? And I 100% specifically remember the quote, we do not have Lyme in North Carolina. Now, could it have been starry? Maybe there's no way for me to go back and prove, but I had a six to seven inch EM rash. So I think we all know what that means. And 10 months later, I pull a fully engorged tick off my leg in Rhode Island. It exacerbated my symptoms almost, you know, instantaneously. I watched my leg for 30 days. No rash happened, but now I've got night sweats, insomnia, my pain and everything has increased. Um, I have sensitivity to the sun, sound sensitivity. I go back to the doctor and they say, Hey, you know, um, uh, I, I go back to the doctor and she's like, well, it's the issues you've been having. It's probably your MS. So now they send me back up to Boston. The doctors are still watching for MS, but I don't qualify. In the meantime, I accidentally have to go to a dermatologist, a young Navy ensign, fresh out of medical school to have a mole removed, completely separate issue. As I'm in there, she, she says a very simple phrase. She says to me, how are you doing? And I about have a nervous breakdown. I start crying and I start talking about the last year of symptoms and the doctors can't find out what's wrong with me. And, you know, I'm going from doctor to doctor and they think I have MS and I just kind of let it go. Cause it was the first time anyone asked, how are you doing? You know, for a year, I'd just been in survival mode, trying to hold on to my career, hold on to my family, hold on to my profession. And I told her everything and I told her I, blah, blah, blah. And then I pulled a tick off 30 days ago and now I feel worse. And she goes, well, has anybody tested you for Lyme? And I was like, well, no. She goes, well, would you like to be tested? I'm happy to do it. I said, yes. And she ordered the two-tier test, the ELISA and the Western blot at the same time. And I came back smoking hot positive from a normal you know, lab. And so um, I took that back to my primary care physician. She goes, oh, that's weird. You didn't get a rash. <laughs> you know, we now know that like half the people with Lyme don't actually get rashes. So these myths are actually causing harm. This lack of education is causing harm. It cost me time. She immediately uh, gave me 28 days of oral doxycycline, which as you know, is slightly more than most doctors give. I took that and all that happened was my symptoms got worse. As my symptoms got worse, um, 
I went back to the doctor. She said, you were treated for Lyme. That's not it. It's got to be something else. And now we're going to start about a three-year journey of seeing, having my body separated into multiple systems. Each doctor saying, well, it's not this system or that system. No one looking at my body holistically um, and a heck of a lot of suffering. So my symptoms would wax and wane. They would come and they would go. Uh, At my very worst, my symptom list was 63 long. I was trying to organize this for doctors. I didn't know what to do. And then I realized bringing a list of 63 symptoms to doctors is not the way to get help in the current medical system. Um, But I was doing the best I could to try to organize this for them. Um, It covered every system in my body. At that point, I was, you know, finishing up Naval War College by the skin of my teeth with extra effort. Um, Got sent back down to Washington, D.C., ended up over at the White House this whole time struggling. And... I got to a point when I was working at joining forces for Michelle Obama and Dr. Jill Biden that I became unable to read or answer emails. And at that point, I knew it was over. Um, They asked me to stay on at joining forces, which would have been an honor. I mean, I had White House parking privileges. Life was good. I was a full bird colonel, but I just couldn't do it. Um, I was barely making it out of bed. I would get home from work and sleep. There was no interaction with my husband's or my kids. I was literally a walking zombie. And in August of 2016, I woke up in my bed in Northern Virginia and I was basically locked in. I was um, paralyzed. I couldn't, sorry, I get my voice get a little quaky. (laughs) I couldn't move and I couldn't walk. And how long that paralysis lasted, I have no idea conceptually or time-wise, but these moments of temporary paralysis uh, would come and go. And it was extraordinarily concerning, obviously to my family and of course, to my military doctors at the time. So to be clear, let's talk about this because it's important to hear these numbers and data from the time of my first rash in North Carolina. And we all know that that was from a tick bite, which pathogen maybe I can't prove, but to that second tick bite all the way to my paralysis in the summer of 2016 was 1,525 days. All right. More than 24 doctors across eight different specialties and three misdiagnoses. So I'll stop there and we can, I, obviously there's more, but I want to get you to that point. <laughs> and you were living in an area where Lyme was very common compared to other parts of the country. And yeah. you had a positive Lyme diagnosis and you got treated for Lyme and you didn't feel better, which again is classic here on this podcast where we see yes. this over and over and over again. And nobody thought, hmm, maybe it's still Lyme or tick-borne illnesses. And I didn't advocate enough for myself. I didn't, uh, I had put medicine on this pedestal that I now realize, right? It's still human beings. Um, I didn't realize the lack of education and awareness that I had and that my medical providers, civilian and military alike, you know, had. If I could go back in time, I would. Um, but that was four years of damage that you just can't undo. And at the time I woke up in 2016, kind of, well, totally paralyzed. Um, the Air Force cut bait uh, through much struggle on my own to get the Air Force to do the right thing. I went up to Boston, Massachusetts, and I was seen at the Dean Center for Tick-Borne Illness, who at the time um, was able to do testing and diagnosis, um, and they cast the net wide. Remember, everything else had been ruled out. Every other differential diagnosis had been ruled out except for tick-borne illnesses. And after hearing my story and seeing my symptoms, keep in mind, I'm not really talking. I'm in a wheelchair. My husband's pushing that chair and talking for me, right? I mean, I was a fighter pilot, man. And now I'm completely broken, 
completely dependent on other people for my activities of daily living. And everyone in the military medicine is like up and it, it started to be thrown around. You know, the drill, uh, psychosomatic, I was called a malingerer, a malingerer me after that career. So offensive, so hurtful all while I'm at the lowest point I've ever been at physically and mentally because of what we now know was just a raging tick-borne illness um, infection. So anyways, the doctors cast the net wide and I came back with positive serology for Borrelia burgdorferi, Borrelia hermsii, anaplasma, Babesia microti, and Bartonella hensley. So I also had an infectious lesion in my fright, right frontal lobe. And I had an infectious lesion on the pons area of my brainstem, which accounts for some of the moments of temporary paralysis. So essentially I was dying and the lack of education and awareness was killing me. And I think it's important to note, not to scare anybody, but untreated Lyme and tick-borne illnesses can kill you. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody just yesterday at my job who knows somebody who suffered from late stage neurological Lyme and co-infections ended up passing away due to complications. So it sounds like you were that sick and thank God you found the Dean, the Dean center in Boston to help you. Yes. And at that point um, they coordinated with a multidisciplinary team, which included infectious disease, ophthalmology, neurology, PMNR at Massachusetts general hospital. So I'm one of the lucky ones. And that's why I do advocacy work. I want to pause right now. The fact that it took me four years to get the help that I needed is ridiculous. The fact that I'm a, one of us, 1% of us who actually gets help is even more ridiculous. Okay. So when I tell my story, I want it to be one of hope, but I also want it to be one of advocacy that says this shouldn't be happening, right? It, it shouldn't take this much effort and this long to be someone who essentially won the lottery. I almost get embarrassed in front of other late stage tick-borne illness patients because I did get help and because I'm considered quote unquote credible and the rest of them are treated the way I initially was, which is it's psychosomatic. You're a malingerer. You're a drain on our system. You're an inconvenience. You know, I managed by the skin of my teeth, by pure luck, by winning the, the, the life lottery to find my way out of this. And that shouldn't be the case. Sorry. I just got a little feisty right there. I do want to, I do want to stop you there. And I do want to challenge you a little bit because I do think there's maybe a little bit of luck in there, but I think it was your drive and your perseverance and your energy that got you to your diagnosis because other people would have given up much sooner and much earlier on. And you kept fighting and fighting and fighting to get where you got to get your diagnosis to get better. So I think you need to give yourself a little bit of credit there, not attribute it all to luck. I take that as a compliment. I do. And I will say this, I 100% believe that the skills and characteristics and traits I honed as a fighter pilot were exactly what I needed in order to survive my illness, advocate for myself, and do what I do now. So if I didn't have a fighter pilot mentality, if I hadn't been shot at and flown in combat, if all those things hadn't happened in these high-pressure environments, you're right. I'm not sure I would be actually alive talking to you today. So let's talk about how, from the time you got your Lyme diagnosis and you weren't treated properly with the 28 days of, of oral doxycycline to the time you finally ended up at the Dean Center and your life was saved, how did Lyme get back on the table and what brought you to the Dean Center? <laughs> thanks for it. Yeah, thanks for that question. Because um, what ended up happening as I was in the military, um, again, they did send me to a lot of great civilian places uh, up in the Midwest, famous names, famous names on the East Coast. Um, every time I talked to them, they all said, well, you had 28 days of doxycycline, so you're cured. It can't be that tick bite. 
None of them mentioned the fact that I had already been sick for about a year by the time I got the doxycycline. So we know I was in a later stage of, of Lyme, let alone none of them discussed any of the other tick-borne pathogens that I could have had, nor did they test for them, which is ridiculous in hindsight, because these are big name institutions. I saw the best that military medicine had to have. I remember going to Walter Reed and meeting with a rheumatologist. This was about two months before I woke up paralyzed. So I am barely walking and talking. I remember him leaning over very condescendingly, putting his hand on mine, kind of trying to comfort me and saying this exact quote, you've been a high performing woman in a male dominated career field for 20 years. Maybe it's time to retire. Wow. That the fact that he's lucky I couldn't have uh, responded. You should have hit him. You should have hit him. I will tell you, um, I am not someone that uh, advocates for violence, but if ever there was a time to throw punch somebody, I'll tell you what, that was horrifying, right? It was just terrible. And, you know, I had gone to see all of the very best and the fact that nobody knew to rule out all tick-borne illnesses. And even if they did, they didn't have the tests to do it, right? Unless you're working at some of these fancy institutions, it's not like you just have a tick-borne illness assay that you can go to, which by the way, as you know, that's what we need, right? A point of care tick-borne illness assay that's good for all stages of disease. Um, and you know what? You asked me a specific question and my line brain just took me down. A- no, it's all good. That was, that was, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's an important part of your story. But I'm curious, after being dismissed for so long and being told you're cured of Lyme, despite the fact that doxycycline doesn't treat some of the co-infections that you now know that you had, and despite the fact that the doxycycline dosage you were on probably didn't address the Lyme because you had it for so long, how did Lyme get brought back on the table and what brought you to the Dean Center for treatment? Okay, so what ended up happening was I was being tossed around from specialist to specialist, right? Somebody, you have to wait two, three months right? Just to see a specialist. And they were dividing me by system, gastroenterology, dermatology, neurology, ophthalmology, nobody finding an answer. So days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years. My medical records are now like three feet high front and back. It's ridiculous. Like I need like a trolley just to take my medical records anywhere. And one day I said to my husband, we got to figure this out. And so he started reading because I couldn't. I was, I've lost my ability to read and comprehend. He started reading my medical records on the kitchen table from top down. It was very confusing, right? All these different specialties, all these different tests all over the place. No one's quarterbacking anything for us, right? No one's honchoing all of this. So he's trying to figure it out. And I looked at him and I remember, he said, turn my records over, turn them over, start reading it from the Air Force Academy when I was a cadet and healthy. Now read it. And Boom. The second that darn EM rash in North Carolina, which by the way, is documented in my records. That's it. So I said, it's got to go back to that bite and that tick bite. Remember? So he looked at my records for the next 10 months and it was clear as day that those two bites, 10 months apart, lightning struck twice are exactly where my health took a bad turn. We knew they had ruled out everything else, leukemia, lymphoma, lupus, et cetera. We knew they'd ruled out MS by that point. So that was it. So then we started doing our own research and I came across an article by Dr. Nevena Zubchevic at the Dean Center for Tick-Borne Illness, a founder of it. She had given a kind of a grand rounds out on Martha's Vineyard and everything she said made sense to me. I was like, that's what I have. I know that's the doctor I need. So what ended up happening is I went back to the military doctors. They said, no, we're not going to send you there. We've already ruled everything else out. 
you know, you were diagnosed with fibromyalgia. We're going to medical review board you and kick you out of the military for fibromyalgia. I said, I'm not concerned about my med board. I know I can't work in the Air Force more. I want to know what caused this. And I believe I have a right to rule out tick-borne illnesses. They said, we sent you to these places. You know, you already got treated for your Lyme. It can't possibly be Lyme, again, ignoring all other tick-borne illnesses. And so out of pure desperation, Cole wrote two sentences, because that took me about an hour to do that. Dr. Zuchevic on LinkedIn, back when you were allowed to cold write people on LinkedIn, you can't do that anymore. But, and I said, I need help. I'm in the military. This is what I, you know, I have. Within an hour, she and I were on the phone. All right. And she said, you're in the military serving our country. You deserve better than this. And you deserve a right to have this ruled out. And I'm happy to take your case. So now I go back to the military and say, I found this person. They know what they're doing. You know, my husband's with me. We, we, we need to, you know, explore all of this. And they said, no, um, you've already, we've already put you through enough. It's not tick-borne. Um, they did bring up, you know, like people who think there's chronic Lyme doesn't exist. Don't follow the quackery, all of that. I said, this is part of Massachusetts General Hospital. This is a Harvard trained physician that stood up and, you know, at Spalding Rehab, a major, you know, tick-borne illness thing. Nope, Nicole, you can't go. You're being kicked out for fibromyalgia. And, and, you know, some people think you're malingering. So I went and I staged a basically a kind of a sit-in at the Air Force Surgeon General's office, a three-star general. Um, I happened to be friends with his aide at the time. And I sat there and I said, I'm not going anywhere until I'm dying. And I have a right to figure out, to explore this. So the general, to his credit, saw me. I remember his front office staff was not happy about that. I interrupted his schedule. I was a random person. They didn't know what I was going to talk about. I went in, I made my case. It was one of the hardest cognitive things I ever did because it was hard to speak. It was hard to stand. And I think he could see that. And the fact that I had my military background as a fighter pilot, a fighter squadron commander, a White House fellow, all of that perceived real and perceived credibility, which people shouldn't have to put out their freaking resume, right? in order to get help, but that's what happened here. My reputation and credibility is what afforded me this chance encounter with a general that said, go let her rule this out, give her special disposition to go see these civilian doctors. So I went up there and they cast the net wide on testing. I already discussed what came back positive. Obviously my MRI and symptoms supported those results. I was diagnosed with a late stage neurological tick-borne illness. And I remember asking the doctors at that time, all of them like, all right, where's the, where's the super shot or the pill? Cause I'm going to get better and I'm going to be back in the jet flying and I'll never forget them looking at me and going, no, you've been sick for at least four years that we know of. There's going to be permanent damage that we're going to have to uncover here. We're going to treat you the best that we can, but you're never going to be a hundred percent and you're never going to fly again. I'll tell you what, man, that's a sucker punch and a half especially knowing what I know now that all of this, all of it was a hundred percent preventable. So where it's, it's, excuse my language, but as shitty as this whole thing is, thank God you got a diagnosis and thank God you found the, the, the Dean foundation. And we actually have interviewed Brandy Dean, who is the yes. founder of the Dean center. And she is a brilliant mom, a brilliant person. And she herself suffered from Lyme and that inspired her to open up the Dean Center in 2015. So it's, it's great to hear that the center is doing great work and it's helped you personally as well. Yes. So talk to us about now, once you had this epiphany of there is no magic shot to get me better, 
what treatment specifically did you start to, to get to move forward to begin your healing journey? Sure. So when we talked about kind of the plethora of pathogens, that's where it became clear that I had different bacteria. I also had parasites, that they all required different treatment. I wanted them just to load me up and get this over with so that, you know, I could be better. But one of the smartest things I think that the doctors did, and I recommend this to anybody, and it, it, it takes time, which is frustrating, right? When you have a quality of life that is so bad, it takes time and it takes commitment, but is to treat one pathogen at a time. That way, you know, if they give you one medicine targeting one pathogen, which is what they did, one medicine, one pathogen at a time, if I had a reaction to that medicine, we'd know and we could shift it to treat the bacteria, right? So that I wasn't taking a lot of medicine at once to treat, you know, Borrelia and Babesia at the same time, because if I had a reaction, what was what, right? So they had me on kind of this long-term plan, which at the time was frustrating, but in hindsight was beautiful because it had a secondary effect. And that secondary effect is, by treating one pathogen at a time with one treatment program or one therapeutic, and sometimes obviously it was combination therapeutics, but you get what I'm saying, targeted to that pathogen. It taught me which symptoms were connected to which pathogen. I now know exactly which symptoms are Babesia versus Bartonella versus Borrelia. And why does that matter? Because these things continue to pop up, right? And I'm able to catch them sooner and go back into treatment, whether that's with, um, you know, prescriptions or uh, more natural, you know, methods. I know my body. I know that I'm not cured of these pathogens, but I know how to keep them at bay. So I had a pick line put in. They were very concerned about the pons lesion on my brainstem, which makes sense. I was having moments of temporary paralysis. And so the pick line went in. I had IV ceftriaxone. Um, I started to make improvement with my speech in particular and word finding over two months. They actually, this is very unique, agreed and military medicine agreed to their credit, a third month of IV ceftriaxone, wow. which is a lot. Um, at the end of that, you know, we kind of take the Borrelia off the plate. It lets, we have to like logically that's when we started treating Babesia. Can I jump in there real quick? I'm sorry to interrupt, but so I, it's fascinating to learn that you were able to identify which symptoms were tied to which infections, right? So now you use the IV ceftriaxone for three months to address the Borrelia before you went on. What symptoms got better? Meaning which of your symptoms were connected to Borrelia that were eliminated as a result or, or helped as a result of the IV ceftriaxone and Borrelia? A lot of my brain function and that brain fog, not, not all of it, cause I still get it, but, um, remember I was at a really low level. So improvement is like, you know, any improvement was good, but again, word finding, um, speech, not slurring a lot of my kind of cognitive function. I started being able to watch a TV again. I started being able to read one or two sentences again. Um, so I found like, uh, my headaches went away with Borrelia. Um, I didn't fatigue joint muscle pain that stayed and it lives with me to this day. Were there any other things that you did besides the IV ceftriaxone to help at that point? It was solely just that were there probiotics, were there any natural medicine? Was there any, anything like glutathione or any other, any other things that are noteworthy in that part of your treatment? Actually during my part of the treatment, no, it was ceftriaxone only looking back. I would have, um, complemented that with high dose probiotics. I have paid the price with a chronic SIBO infection, which I still live to this day. Um, I wish we had talked about those things. I wish mainstream medicine would be more open to some of those things. Um, 
But no, at that time I was purely on ceftriaxone. And, and once we finished that, we, we went towards Babesia microti and I'll never forget the meprone, etobicone, malarone, kind of in different ways. I had to treat it three different times to get those bloods clear. That's how bad my Babesia was. And interestingly, within a week, literally within a week of starting that medicine, my fever that I had had every day, fever of unknown origin, right? That's what they called it for four years. I had a fever of 100 to 101 every day for four years. But because I didn't have blood, blood tests that matched that, they just assumed it was fever of unknown orange. They just said, maybe it's your hormones. Maybe you're perimenopausal. Nope. The second I treated my Babesia, guess what happened to my night sweats and my fever gone right now, uh, predominantly night sweats and fevers. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I used to have horrific, uh, uh, night terrors, nightmares, dreams, horrible dreams, never had problems like that before being bit by the tick. Uh, those went away with Babesia treatment. So you know, I still have insomnia to this day, but my insomnia improved. So for me, Babesia was more like fever, sweats, um, and sleeping got better. And, and what then, did you, I'm sorry, what did you use to treat that again? That was the malarone, I believe you said, was, correct? There was, oh goodness gracious. Uh, I know there was malarone, there was mepron, there was a tobacone. Um, yeah. So it was the combo of all these, these anti-parasitic drugs or anti-malaria drugs to address it. It was, wasn't just one, it was several. It was several um, at different times. So that took a few uh, months. So now, right, Borrelia anaplasma is off the plate. Babesia is off the plate. We let we saved the hardest and the worst for last. But you said anaplasma is off the plate. So that was addressed with the IBS have Traxone as well, correct? Because yes, that, that was, both? That was the theory, right? That's, yep. that's the going in argument. Um, and so now we're left with uh, the beast, right? Or what we call the beast in my house, um, Bartonella Hensley. And we treated Bartonella with six months of rifampin, which as you know, is very hard on the body, which requires you to get weekly blood tests. Um, uh, that was in conjunction with another antibiotic. Rifampin should always be used in conjunction with another antibiotic from what I understand. I'm not a medical doctor, obviously. Uh, I forget what that second antibiotic is, forgive me. Um, I did end up with borderline long QT in all of this. So I now deal with that heart issue. So what, what does that mean? What is, what is borderline long QT? One, one beat away from having diagnosable long QT. So uh, it's called a borderline uh, EKG, ECG. Um, it's a problem with my T waves. So I didn't have that before I got bit by the tick. I have it now and it um, can sometimes restrict the type of antibiotics and medications that doctors can give me. Um, long QT is also connected to um, sudden death. And that, that's a cardiac condition, you said, I believe. Okay. T waves of the heart. So somewhere in there, I picked that up. Um, it's technically not long QT. It's called borderline long QT, but it's enough that the doctors were very careful about what antibiotics they gave me because some antibiotics can worsen and they didn't want to take me that one beat over or whatever, one beat closer to full long QT. So I got long QT still, or borderline long QT. I've got SIBO uh, still, but anyways, we treated with uh, Bartonella with rifampin, um, Gosh, this is the most thorough I think I've ever talked about this. And it's really forcing my brain to think back a long ways. But um, 
But while you're thinking, can I ask another question? Yes. <laughs> so, so much here. So we've heard a lot about Lyme carditis. Is that really, do you think that's one and the same with this long QT or do you think they're separate? Because we heard that Borrelia can affect the heart and they, you can have, you know, heart inflammation. Is this separate long QT or is that something that, that may be the same? So I do not know. I'm not as smart in the cardiology area. It's definitely a question to, to have a have a cardiologist on about. Obviously, Lyme, I did not have Lyme carditis. Lyme carditis is very real, as you know, and can cause sudden death. Uh, long QT is more of a, I, as I understand it, like the T wave, it's more of a problem with one portion of the wave, not like an infection. It's an electrical problem versus gotcha. like carditis being an inflammation. But uh, I am not a cardiologist, but no. certainly you guys should look into that. That'd be an interesting, um, that'd be an interesting topic, actually. <laughs> so but that was far more than we knew already because they are, they are separate. One is an inflammation. One is due to an electrical wave. Yeah. And, and in regards to the Bartonella, um, mm -hmm. we, we've had people tell us in the past that people mistakenly identify Lyme rage as being something driven by Borrelia, but they feel it's really from Bartonella and they call it Bartonella rage. Do you ever experience anything like that? And what, what are your thoughts? Do you think it was Borrelia rage or do you think it was Bartonella rage? So I a hundred percent think it's Bartonella and I'm happy to talk about these because we need to talk about this. Um, I did not have any mental health issues or symptoms prior to being bitten uh, by that second tick. All right. Um, and I'm not afraid to share right now with everybody exactly what happened. Um, literally from the time of those bites until the time that I started treating Bartonella. All right. I had uh, anxiety. Like I was scared to walk on the sidewalk because I thought a car would always hit me. Now I'm someone that flew in combat. I knew deep down that this was a ridiculous feeling and I would fight myself and my sanity in my own head. So I had um, anxiety that was just unnecessary. I absolutely had uncharacteristic irritability and moments of rage, totally not part of my personality or who I am. And it was a very difficult thing to have. I also had um, sound hallucinations. There was always words. I'm glad to say that I never heard or understood what the words were, but I knew someone was talking and whispering in my ear. And that is a very scary feeling. So my brain was on fire and the single worst mental health symptom I had. All right. And these started around, around that time that I became paralyzed, right? About that real peak in August of 2016. And I'd never had these before. And it is scary, scary for my husband, scary for my family and friends. The worst that I had, the worst thing, I had paranoia, like to the point that I would want to close the blinds in my house and I would, I would crawl to the window and move the blinds. And if I saw a car go by, I thought it was like someone spying on me. How crazy, how absolutely right, wild and insane is that? Within three days, I'm telling you, of being on Rifampin, that veil started to lift and I haven't had mental health symptoms since. So I went down the mental health rabbit hole for about 12 months and I empathize deeply with anyone who is dealing with mental health reasons of any kind due to biological factors or infections or not. It's real. And um, all of my symptoms, 100% were attached to Bartonella. So can I just ask a question about that? So we have, you have a very unique perspective and I'm, and I'm so appreciative for this because you were able to identify again, which symptoms were caused by which pathogen because of the way you treated. Yes. And we've had people, I think, mistakenly tell us in the past that they have severe anxiety after being treated for Lyme and feeling better. And it's something they have to live with. But I think you're telling us those people might have Bartonella and they should look at that because as soon as you treat a Bartonella, your anxiety, your paranoia, and your hallucinations were lifted. Is that correct? 
hundred percent. And I will tell you, this is the problem. And this is why I don't always use that term Lyme. I'm very careful to say that I'm a survivor of late stage tick borne illness. We need to remember if you are bit by a tick, Lyme disease is just one thing you need to look for. You know, I mean, we're not even, why isn't, aren't people considering other strains of Borrelia? Why, why aren't people considering Babesia, Anaplasma, or Lichia? I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, one tick bite, there's been scientific literature on this. This doesn't take a rocket scientist or a fighter pilot to point this out. One tick bite, while maybe statistically rare, can indeed infect you with multiple pathogens. And, and unless you do thorough testing, you're never going to know. Maybe their Lyme, Borrelia burgdorferi is treated by 28 days or 21 days of doxycycline. When patients stay sick, it is vital that we cast that net wide and test for everything else. I think, I think it's reasonable. It is reasonable to rule out all tick-borne illnesses. So I just want to jump in there again. I, you know, some, from our studies, we've learned that a tick bite can transmit up to 200 pathogens to the human body or to its host. And that includes bacteria, viruses, parasites, et cetera. And beyond that, I think another really powerful tip you're giving us that I really want to emphasize here is if you're listening to this podcast and you suffer from neurological Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease, and, and possibly other co-infections, and you got treated and you're not getting, you're not 100% better, you're not in better in a way you think you could be, look at other co-infections. And I think to your point, a lot of these tests aren't the best. So clinically, based on your observations, working with a Lyme literate physician, we can deduce what possibly we might have as a co-infection and try to treat it and see how we feel and try that trial and error process to feel even better. Because I think many of us think we're the best we're ever going to be. And in most cases, it's not true. We can get better and we should continue to look for other things that are causing us to feel sick. Amen. hundred percent agree with what you just said. <laughs> so, but, you know, moving forward now to go back to the whole Bartonella piece. So you treated with rifampin. Your, your neurological, your anxiety, your, your rage, your, your, um, your psychosis, all of that went away. And how quickly did that take? Was that about a week you said? I want to make sure I understood that correctly. It certainly was like, it certainly was, um, kind of like, you know, progressive veil lifting, but I, I distinctly remember three days into this telling my husband just three days into Rifampin feeling like the veil is lifting. I said, I feel like I, I feel my personality. Like I lost my personality. I lost feelings. I didn't have feelings or emotion and it wasn't depression. It was a lack of anything. That's another kind of Bartonella symptom I had. And I started after like three or four days of Rifam and starting to feel that veil lift. And literally after like four to six weeks of it, those mental health symptoms like were gone. Can I jump in again? I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I see Rich had the same reaction I just had based on the visual cues here that I know listeners can't see. We have had so many people tell us that they're feeling better but they can't feel feelings anymore, or they, they just feel like they don't have a personality and they feel like they're, they're just like this, like the shell, an emotionless shell. And you just described again, because again, your unique perspective of how you treated that for you treating Bartonella with rifampin got you your personality back and allowed you to feel feelings again. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And I think it's really important because I think many people in the community are suffering from that piece and they don't realize that there may be help for them. So thank you for, for pointing that out. I'm sorry for interrupting again. No, no, that's, that's great. I'm glad that we're pulling out those salient points. You know, hopefully somebody out there is listening and if it can help just one person, right. Get part of their life back. Cause this is all about quality of life, right. You know um, if I hadn't have been accurately diagnosed and thoroughly eventually treated, I wouldn't have this quality of life, which is worth living. 
you know, and a lot of this is, well, you know, people will throw spears, obviously, at the, the chronic Lyme disease, chronic tick-borne illness community and say, you know, don't stay on antibiotics, don't try different things, don't do this or that. Man, this is where it's up to the patient and the doctor-patient, the sanctity of that relationship, you know, to decide what are the pros and the cons, what are the risks worth it? You're, you're the only one that can judge, is this a quality of life that I, I'm worth living? Look, when I was bedridden and in these moments of temporary paralysis, for me and my husband, we would accept any risk to get out of it. My heart was beating, but I was not living. And it was my choice with my doctors to assess that risk. And let's be clear, I'm an intelligent woman. Most of us are, right? Uh, I don't want to put anything into my body without having a full understanding of what those risks are. And um, it's called informed consent. And I'm unsure why this concept of informed consent is thoroughly accepted in every other illness and disease I can think of, but is not given to patients of late stage tick-borne illness. I'm lucky I had doctors that, because of the credibility of my background, allowed me informed consent. Everyone should have the right to informed consent, regardless of their background. So tell us, were there any other treatments you did with the Dean Center or any other, any other pathogens that you had to address throughout this journey? Uh, no, I, that was, I was very, again, antibiotic heavy. I was pretty stable for a year. Again, I'd like the viewers to know I'm not a hundred percent, right? I still have executive cognitive dysfunction. I have a balance deficit. I have pretty moderate to severe damage to my autonomic nervous system. These are things that can't be fixed. I'm actually in a trial that can't talk about the names and all that right now. But just last month, not kidding, I came back positive for Borrelia hermsii and by PCR positive for Bartonella hensley. So, right, we know that it's in me. Um, and so with all of the antibiotics, I ended up with SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which can impact your quality of life. Um, I treated that with antibiotics. It didn't go away. So I am now working with a functional medicine doctor. Um, I'm trying to avoid the antibiotic route. So right now I'm repairing my gut health, um, trying to with heavy probiotics, a lot of, you know, different things there, natural things changed to my diet. I'm on a strict AIP diet right now, which has in fact improved my fatigue and has in fact improved my joint pain. So, so what does AIP mean? What's an AIP diet? Sure. AIP is autoimmune protocol. Um, and a lot of people go, what does that mean? You can't have, I think it's easier to tell people what I can have. I can have any protein, any fruit or any vegetable except nightshades. Otherwise I'm gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, nut-free, grain-free, and um, nightshade-free, egg-free. <laughs> but if you look at it the other way, it's a more positive mindset. I can have any protein or fruit that I want and any vegetable other than nightshades. <laughs> and look, you're feeling better and your quality of life is better, so it's worth it, right? And, and you also mentioned to address your gut health that you were doing some probiotics and other natural things. Can you just get a little bit deeper on that? What kind of natural stuff are you doing? Are you doing herbs, supplements? How are you addressing your SIBO and your gut health beyond the probiotics? Yeah, so I, I do occasionally take things like glutathione. I take um, oil of oregano. I'm a big fan of that, but I don't believe on staying on that long term. I think you should do 30 days and take some time off. So I keep that antimicrobial, you know, in there. I do supplement with vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc. Kersetin, um, I'm taking GI Synergy, which I think has been very helpful to um, my gut health. So I'm trying this new, I personally, as sick as I was, like near death, really, I needed the high dose antibiotics. I needed that, okay? Not everybody needs that, right? Based on where they are. And we have plenty of research, not just anecdotal, actual research that shows there are 
um, non-antibiotic ways to kind of get at some of these pathogens and some of these symptoms. So everyone is different and it's just so vital that everyone has this conversation with their doctors and practitioners, do the research yourself, right? And try things out. It's okay to try things and see if they work. And then if it doesn't try something else, you just can't give up. So I think we're kind of at to the point. So this was about a five-year window. You got diagnosed officially by the Dean Center about five years ago. We walked through everything you did there and what you're doing today. Before I hand you back over to Rich, is there anything else you did from a treatment standpoint that we missed that you feel is worthy to bring up on this podcast that was helpful or, or integral in your healing journey? Yeah, I think Epsom salt baths were very uh, helpful to me. I had to be careful because I did, I do still have heat intolerance, but I feel like Epsom salt baths um, did help me and did give me kind of temporary relief from pain. Um, I also did some acupuncture to help with neuropathy when it got very bad. And that also would give me moments of temporary relief, which were worth it. It wasn't permanent, but it was enough to, I can't take it today. I need help today. You know, um, therapeutic massage, uh, lymphatic massage is something I believe, uh, deeply in done by a trained practitioner. Um, and there's, there's one thing that the, I guess is the cuckoo, the cuckoo thing that I do, like I'm a firm believer in Alka-Seltzer gold. I found that out through patients, right? Uh, there is no science that proves that Alka-Seltzer gold helps anything, but for whatever reason, when I was having these big flares at my worst, especially during treatment, right? Because treatment makes the symptoms worse before it makes them better. So get up for that. When I'd have those moments of just severe pain or just, I'd start slurring my words again, I would take Alka-Seltzer gold and I feel like I would feel a little bit better for a few hours. Um, I recognize that I am not, please, I'm not a doctor. Please read uh, the directions and all of that on the back of Alka-Seltzer gold, make sure it's gold. Um, but it did bring me some temporary relief and I still carry Alka-Seltzer gold with me everywhere I go. It's in my backpack. It's in my purse. It's in my glove compartment. I just want to jump in on that for one final comment, because I bought Alka-Seltzer Gold based on the feedback of the community and, and doing this podcast. And I think it was about two or three weeks ago, I tried it for the first time and I was having a good day. And I, and I'm, and I didn't realize that like, okay, I had some minor symptoms going on and I took it and I'm like, I feel even better. So I think, and then I did some research because like you, I'm like, what is this magic, right? Yeah. And yeah, what is this? And from what I read and understood, it actually, when, when, you're, when you're in a herx or you're flaring or you have inflammation or you're not feeling well, your body becomes more acidic, which is an environment for not being well. And what Alka-Seltzer Gold does is it brings down that acidic level of your body and it alkalizes your body. And then that gives you, put your body in a state to now be able to heal and repair versus being in an acidic state. And that's, a, that's again, just for my Google research, but I, it, it works for me and it clearly worked for you. So I wanted to just point that out for everybody listening, that there is some idea as to why it's so helpful for people like us in the Lyme community. Yeah. So I, I know that there's no actual peer reviewed published literature on that. So I just want to point that out, but I use it and it works for me. So. So Colonel, tell us about now what has been beautiful about this journey, meaning what did you learn about yourself that you would not have learned had you not gone through the suffering of this journey and how are you now using that to help other people in the community? Yeah. So I definitely learned that I'm stronger than I ever gave myself credit for. And I definitely learned that the power of just owning your own story and owning your own truth, it's very hard when you know a truth and to have people say that that can't be happening. You know, some people might use the term gaslighting. I think that's appropriate that you can be strong through that. Um, I learned uh, who was truly important in my life. 
right? So it's uh, when you become chronically ill, especially with something that's considered a controversial illness, unnecessarily controversial, it's amazing how many people will flee. But the beauty of it is knowing who's your ride or die, you know, and I know truly who my friends are. I gained a whole new community of amazing people. The tick-borne illness community is so impressive. They're, they're courageous, they're strong, they're brave, they're compassionate and kind, they're highly intelligent. I gained an entire new tribe that I never would have known that I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of. My level of compassion for other human beings, period, of, in any sense, you know, like my, my, my compassion for long COVID sufferers right now is like off the roof, right? It's a good thing. It's a human thing. I feel more for other people who are suffering in any way. Um, and I love that I've gotten back to a place where I'm healthy enough to give voice to the voiceless because there are countless of us out there around the globe who are bedridden, unable to walk, talk, read, and write like I was for a year. And we as a community have the power, you with this podcast, me sharing my story, all of the other nonprofits, patient advocates out there have the power to join forces and give voice to the voiceless. And we have momentum now. And I believe we are approaching a tipping point big time. It's coming, right? We're almost here. We just got to stay the course and we got to stay united. So all of those are good and great things that came out of this illness. I would never want to go back. In fact, people tell me all the time, Nicole, I'm so sorry you lost your career. I'm so sorry you can't fly again. I tell them I don't miss flying. I miss being with people. I miss being on a team. And, and honestly, this, has, this illness has given me a new team. It's given me a new tribe, right? It's given me a, a new purpose. I was never meant to just be a fighter pilot or a colonel in the Air Force. Everything through that military career, combat, flying fighters, leading in the White House, all of that was actually to put me right where I am today to give voice to the voiceless. And I truly believe that. And it's a joy to be a part of this community. So now, Colonel, I'm going to ask you the last question we ask everyone on the Tick Bootcamp podcast, but I'm going to ask you it a little bit differently than I've ever asked anyone else. And that is, if God forbid you are standing before um, all of the cadets and all of the people who are now joining the military, and you are asked to give them advice about what steps they should take to protect themselves from tick-borne illnesses, what advice would you give them? Well, step one, treat all of your clothing, gear, and equipment with permethrin. Step two, treat all of your skin, not just the exposed skin, with, with Picardin or DEET or an equivalent before you go out. Step three, carry a tick removal kit with you so that you can remove any ticks as soon as you find them, which is, I guess, step 2B, I should have said, is know how to do a proper tick check. Know how to check yourself every time you come in from the outdoors. Know how to properly remove a tick. Know how to save that tick in the event you develop symptoms, right? So that you can get that tick tested to better help your, you and your doctors target treatment. Know what the symptoms are so that you can recognize them early so that you can get treatment early because early diagnosis and early treatment confers better outcomes. And know that, right, that it's up to you to educate yourself your families, as well as even sometimes the medical doctors and clinicians that you work with. But hashtag permethrin is your friend. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Colonel Nicole Malakowski. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Colonel Malakowski, please visit our Instagram page at Real Malakowski. 
Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts or on Instagram or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.